I feel Hello. like we can make a song out of our countdown. Get get someone to do a little remix. Yes. A little, little beat, a little <laughs> a little dubstep. Um I mean we gotta know somebody who has some music skills somewhere out in the world that would love to yeah. make a ridiculous terrible inside joke. I one of Clinton James's friends made like a a remix situation for the Star Trek podcast set podcast is done, which Clinton and I do with uh, someone else named Corey. Uh, maybe he would do that for us with our countdown clap countdown button. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm supposed to have like a podcast side project now too. I joke that I, I just create a bunch of new ones all the time. Like, if we mention Indiana Jones, I'm like, oh, join me for my Indiana Jones podcast or join me for this podcast. It's like, <laughs> no. To uh, be fair, I thought Clint asked if I would be interested in recording um, a podcast about Star Trek, and I thought he meant, like, I would come on for one episode, not I would be one-third of the whole production uh, so well, I kind of agreed to something that I was not aware of, but, uh, now I'm there and he can't take me out, so. That's fine. We get it, Clint. You think you can make a better podcast than us. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fine. we'll just see. I'll start, I'll start my own podcast called Jennifer Just Talks Into a Microphone and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Uh, but this podcast is not that. It is <laughs> All Things Terror, where we bring you a weekly story from science, history, and true crime that is spooky enough to keep you up at night. I'm Jennifer, and that was Emily. This is Emily, and that was Jennifer. So and uh, our intro is, you know, it's an auditory liminal space, you know, Jennifer... <laughs> You want to define what a liminal space is for the audience? Do do I want to? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> what, what, the answer can be no. What What's... Are you looking for a really... Uh, it just means that our uh, intro is in a perpetual state of becoming. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It's an in-between space. Okay, so a liminal space, it exists usually to move you from one space to another, or it's existing between its normal normal times. I like that you said it's a perpetual state of becoming. So it's really uh, unpleasant or eerie um, or uncomfortable. People usually don't often stay in liminal spaces. They move through them. Um, like, think about if you go to an office building or a school on the weekends. There's none of the people there. The purpose is gone, but you are aware of what that purpose for that building should be. Uh, it's it's an eerie, unpleasant place. Uh, it's also, I think, very similar to like when you're up really late, like at two or three in the morning, and you just feel creepy, and, and you know everyone else is asleep, but you're awake, but you can't do normal things that you would normally do when you're awake for some reason. It's because you are existing in the liminal. Um, or when you go to the 
DMV or the MVD, depending on what part of the world you're in in the United States. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and everything goes really smoothly. That's also a liminal space. Mm -hmm. Or uh, if you work in like a bar and you are, you know, after every all the customers get out, you spend all this time with your coworkers closing it and cleaning stuff and, you know, counting the money. But then as soon as all of those tasks are done, it becomes a really uncomfortable place to be. Like sometimes the lights are off, the doors are locked. You're essentially just in a place where people hang out all the time. But as soon as you don't have any tasks, you don't want to stay there. Are you saying that you don't like my uh, DMV joke? Because <laughs> I'm just saying these are all really good examples. Um, but I guess purgatory, right? Is a liminal space. It is. The ultimate liminal space, in my mind, are airports. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, nobody ever wants to be there. Nobody goes there just to be there. They go there on en route to somewhere else. And people, like, invent activities and purposes, especially if you get stuck. Um, you know, you're going to browse what is essentially a gas station like oh i'm gonna go see what's in the shops you know even if you're not hungry you're like oh let's get some food like you invent things to do so you don't feel how weird it is that you're in this place that has no purpose so do you do you remember the langoliers by stephen king uh i remember you talking about it okay i i never i haven't read it for the people who have read it this can be super fast connection. For those who haven't, I'll give you a brief explanation, but you really need to read it. It's a short story. You can do it. But <laughs> basically, the Langoliers are these creatures that, like, eat the past. And um, these people on an airplane uh, end up somehow getting stuck in the past. Like, they're, they're real selves. So, like, the whole mission is basically to find a way to catch up to the present. And of of the things that, like, um, like, make the past, quote, the past in the story eerie is, like, food doesn't have any taste, uh, beer is flat, like, that kind of stuff, on top of the fact mm -hmm. that these Langoliers are coming to, like, eat your face. Yeah. Um... <laughs> But it's really funny because, like, one of the last parts of the story are the people are in the airport. And um, the they're there when the Langoliers come to, like, eat their faces. But also, like, there's a point where they, um, like, the present is finally catching up to them and it's catching up in the airport space. And I think that was actually very appropriate, like a really appropriate choice. Like, how do you, how do you describe a liminal space? How do you describe like something being so off and like the off moment occurs in the actual airport, you know, terminal when they're trying to like mm -hmm. eat food and drink beer and like figure out what the fuck yeah. is going on. Yeah. And I, I, um, if you've ever been stuck, like I've had planes flights grounded in the city where I have a layover and one time I was stuck in Houston overnight 
And everything in an airport closes super early. So it closed at like eight or something. And all these people were just like literally just walking around or like, you know, they have shuttles from terminal to terminal. People would just like ride the shuttle or like just walk down a hallway. It was very, very unsettling. <laughs> well, I think we have solved liminal spaces. Uh, it's always the airport. That's like that's always the airport. That's the origin so, of liminal space. Yeah. So now, next time you go to an airport and you're like, "Why can't I settle down? Why can't I relax?" You know, it's because it's a weird place to just sit. Um, and I'm gonna take that starting eerie, uncomfortable place, and we're gonna make it even spookier and creepier because I'm gonna talk about people who went to a liminal space and disappeared. This is exciting. Yeah, I'm hitting my disappeared early. And I'm actually going in a different order than I normally do. I'm going to go. So I have three cases. And I think that there are actually for at least maybe two or three. I don't know. There's some very probable explanation for what's going on. I don't think that's a comforting thing, like the explanation is still rather scary, but I'm going to go from the case that has sort of the most plausible, like this is okay, we can probably figure out what's going on, to the one that's just the most overall mysterious. Sound good? Yes. All right, so let's start with Dmitry Zavadasky. Dmitry Zavadasky. He was a 27-year-old Belarusian journalist and cameraman. And you know how sometimes we do a science, Jennifer? Are we going to do a science? Those are my favorite. We're not going to do a science, but no! we are going to do, do a politics. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do a lot of background reading for this one. Um, so Belarus, where he is from, is an independent state. But in 2000, they formed with Russia the Union State. So these two countries formed essentially a mini European Union. And Belarus's president, which I'm saying in air quotes, uh, is the only president they've ever had. And he's been president for 26 years. He, his name is uh, Alexander. I think it's Alexander. I didn't write it down. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, Alexander Lukashenko, and uh, he's called Europe's last dictator, so man, he could be his own episode. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's pretty bad. Uh, Belarus would basically be an excellent setting for a political thriller, and a very dangerous place for journalists, which our main guy, Dmitry Zavadovsky, was. Uh, one of the projects that this guy worked on. Um, he worked on with his buddy, um, Pavel Sheremet. So Pavel Dimitri did this story where they crossed um, between Belarus and somewhere else, I can't remember, and like filmed how easy it is to cross what should be a really dangerous and like locked down border. And when this was published, they got in a lot of trouble and they were put on trial. And they were essentially say, being tried for saying things negative about the government. And they were found guilty. 
um, which is okay. upsetting. Yeah. Um, they were found guilty, but their jail time was suspended. And this was such a like big deal that um, it caused some fallout between Russia and Belarus. And Lukashenko was actually en route, like, on a plane to land in Russia. And Russia was like, we're mad about this. Fuck you. You can't land. So he's, you know, reporting the real stuff. He's stirring shit up. And then from October 1999 to May 2000, uh, Dmitry and Pavel are starting a new project. And they are in Chechnya doing a doco about the second Chechnyan war. Okay, so this is where I really do a politics. So here's the Chechen war in a nutshell. <laughs> so Chechnya or the Chechen Republic is, quote, a republic of Russia. And in 1999, an Islamist group slash warlord faction slash rebel, I don't know, it's a little unclear. This group comes up and is like, fuck all y'all, we're going to be our own country now. And Russia is like, Chechnya, no, we want you. And so Russia moves in all these troops to put this insurrection down. And again, I want to make it clear that they're saying this is a specific group that is doing this, not all of Chechnya. And so Russia moves in all these troops. They do eventually put this thing down, but it takes 10 years and an estimated 25,000 to 50,000 are dead, mostly Chechen civilians. Was it worth who, it, Russia? You know, <laughs> Right, or was it worth it, Islamist, warlord, whatever group? Like, yeah, seems like one of those things where nobody really no one comes wins. out ahead. Yeah, no one wins that. Yeah. And so apparently the thing that Dimitri and Pavel found while filming this doco is that Belarus's, quote, security forces, which I'm taking this to mean kind of like a National Guard, were found fighting with the rebels against Russia. Which would be a really big, bad thing. Oh, shit, y'all. Yeah, so, I mean, listen, this is just bananas and this would absolutely never happen. But, like, imagine if when those really crazy QAnon and Trump supporters came to the Capitol and were like, we're going to overthrow the government. And then the White House security let them into the Capitol to riot and were sympathetic in helping them. That would be unimaginable, right, Jennifer? Yes. Entirely unimaginable. <laughs> so that's what this big new project is. So, uh, a couple months later, July 7th, 2000, uh, Dimitri is going to the Minsk airport. Minsk being the capital of Belarus, which I also had to look up. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going to the airport to meet Pavel. And I haven't seen if he was actually traveling somewhere, if he was picking Pavel up, if they were just meeting. Like, I never really found out why the airport, which just makes this even more of a liminal weird thing. Um, Dimitri is seen in the airport, but he never connects with Pavel. And later, his car is found in the parking lot. And that is it. Dimitri Zavadovsky is never seen again. Now, That's this not is not creepy. <laughs> no, I know, right? Not creepy at all. This is a classic Emily disappeared story. However, this is where it gets maybe a plausible explanation, but a plausible explanation that's really unsettling and creepy. So, before Dimitri disappeared, 
Uh, he apparently had been getting threatening calls for months. I never saw any description of what those calls were or what the threats were. Uh, just they got on for a long time. And as he was leaving his house, his neighbors uh, reported seeing, quote, two men trailing him near his apartment building on the day he disappeared. The witnesses helped police artists compile, comp compile composite drawings of the two men, but the police refused to release them to the public. So hmm. that's not helpful. Two years after Dimitri's disappearance in 2002, the Minsk court sentenced two men to jail for life for murders. Not Dimitri's murders. But those two murderers were in a group of four or five uh, people that were all tried and convicted of, like, kidnapping. And so they've been tried and convicted of Dimitri's kidnapping, but not his murder. Uh, prosecutors in the case said that these were two dudes who were, uh, either quote, uh, and this is from reporters without borders, quote, former members of the interior Ministry's special forces or another source called them quote, elite Belarusian police unit Almas. However, the prosecutor said that they acted on their own behalf because Dimitri was, they had published an interview with him where he talks about the Belarusians joining the Chechens during the war. So this has come out, and these two guys, totally independently, are so pissed about it that they kidnap him. Mm. Hmm. Um, the And I'm going to try and be good about sources here, because there's not a lot of information, and the information that does come out is weird. So there's a Belarusian social association of journalists... And they said that one of the ways that these four or five, and I saw bold numbers, I don't know, were convicted of kidnapping, um, they found a shovel that had uh, Zavadaski's blood on it, which doesn't seem great. Um, reporters without borders said that there was, quote, no effort to even find the body. So, like, you know, nobody did anything. Um, the Committee to Protect Journalists said that, uh, like, and this is a little bit more detailed, said that anonymous sources told them that the killers had confessed and even said, like, okay, we'll show you where the body is. But officials were like, no, we're not going to investigate that. You're going to let it go. Uh, Zavadaski's mother requested an open public trial of the kidnappers and was denied. Uh, during the trial, it, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, which is Human Rights Watch Commission, apparently witnessed the trial, um, you know, to keep an eye on it. And they were like, yeah, this is not great. I wasn't able to find the exact report, but they were sort of concerned about it. Uh, after the trial, his wife requested a copy of the case, which is legal under Belarusian law and something that, like, normally would be routine. And she was instead denied. Uh, and then... Um, very interestingly, in 2002, um, and this is from the Committee to Protect Journalists, quote, two former employees of the Prosecutor General's office, Dmitry Petrushkevich and Oleg Shulchek, who had alleged that President Alexander Lushenko had derailed the investigation because of evidence linking a government-led death squad to Zavadaski's murder, were granted asylum in the United States. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're not saying that Lukashenko 
hired people and like made this happen. But we're also saying that if people say that, we'll grant you asylum in the United States. Hmm. So, just an everyday classic government cover-up then. Yeah, and there is a lot of uh, writing that makes it sound like, yeah, it's quite probable that he was disappeared by his government and they are covering it up. Um, Russia uh, is known for murdering journalists a lot. And I think one of the things that's really creepy about this is that it is such a classic case of disappearing people, which happens in, you know, South America and dictatorships around the world where the point of disappearing people is to create a climate of uncertainty and fear. It is supposed to be terrorism at the hands of the state. Like, you know, whatever Dimitri's scoop was, it was out of the bag, but they wanted the people that were left behind to not know what happened to him and to be afraid. So that's creepy. Very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's move on to another one. <laughs> this is just like no good way to, uh, to transition. So let's go talk about Ben C. Padilla. This guy has a tight job. Uh, he's certified as an aircraft mechanic, a flight engineer, and he's certified to fly small planes. And he goes all over the world just freelancing, flying people around, working for different companies and people, you know, Cambodia, all kinds of cool stuff. It does sound fun. Like, yeah, where you want to go? Hop in my tiny plane. Right? And you know that, like, how many people in the world are both aircraft mechanics and flight engineers and able to fly small planes? So he's like, yeah, I can I can do all of it. Give me thousands of dollars, right? So my question is, when are you going to do all those things? And then we can take a cheese vacation. I, you know, I have only recently been able to fly without heavily medicating myself. <laughs> so I think maybe you should become the aircraft mechanic, flight engineer, and small plane pilot out of this duo. <sighs> Next Fine. you're going to tell me you want to go horse riding. I do. I, I, no. I rode a horse once and I loved every moment of it. Someone uh, recently told me that horses can't throw up. Why? Why can't they throw up? I don't know why, because they are a mistaken creature that never should have existed. Don't know. But, you know, if they, like, get indigestion, I guess they just die. (laughs) They have to have... They gotta got something going on. They can't. They can't throw up. They can fart, though says, horses have a band of muscle around the esophagus as it enters the stomach. Horses almost physically can't because of the power of the cutoff valve muscle. Normally, if a horse does vomit, it is because its stomach has completely ruptured, which in turn means that the poor house horse will soon be dead. So, uh, so a, a throwing up horse, not good, but... A non-throwing up horse generally is good news. Not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so either a dying horse or a horse from the exorcist, if it's throwing Mm -hmm. up. Exactly. 
Uh, luckily, Ben does not. He's not a horse engineer, so we don't have to yeah. talk about those. Okay, hobbies. moving on. Moving on. No more so, horses. It, never. In 2003, he's supervising work on a Boeing 727. He's not licensed to fly it, but he's doing the mechanic stuff, uh, and he's in Angola. The plane has been sitting for two years, and according to the Charlie Project, the plans were that a company, Aerospace Sales and Leasing Company, owned the plane, and they were leasing it to Air Angola. Air Angola defaulted on its lease, and so Padilla and crew were going to fix it up, fly it to be repossessed in South Africa, and Ben would be the flight mechanic en route. There are some other things that I will get into about ownership, but that's sort of one root of what's going on. Um, I'm not sure if this had already been done to the plane or if this was the work that Padilla was supervising. I think it had already been done. But um, the seats, so this was at one point like an American Airlines passenger plane, similar to something we've all been on. And the seats had basically all been removed, and instead it had been fitted to haul fuel. Uh, specifically, 14,000 gallons of jet fuel, which it had been stocked up with. Uh, one place that I looked at said that it was a different company had contracted this plane to deliver um, fuel to diamond mines. So, who knows? Um in May of 2003, while Padilla is doing this work, um, he gets an email that his mother's had a heart attack. Oh. And I know his family knew that, you know, he worked in these weird places and did these weird jobs. And so they were like, well, it's not super weird if we don't hear from him or whatever. He replies that he's in Africa doing this refurbishment and he's going to call them ASAP. Uh on May 25th, however, this is what really happens. So the plane that Padilla is working on starts taxiing without permission. So it moves from an area of the airport where they're just working to, like, the runway. When radio try to, operators try to contact it, they get no response. So, you know, you can imagine the people in the tower being like, hello, hello, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're not cleared for takeoff. What's going on? No, no response. Yep. The only two people in the plane were our guy, Ben Padilla, who, again, does not know how to fly this plane, and a Congolese crewman named John Mikel Mutanto, who was not a pilot at all. He was, like, just a worker mechanic dude. So, so not super scary situation, <laughs> if it takes off. <laughs> right? And so not only is this already kind of crazy, like, these two people don't know how to fly this, or they're not licensed to... Um, normally, this plane takes three licensed pilots to fly. Jesus. Yeah. So, the plane does what planes do, and it takes off. And that's it. It's literally never seen again. Holy crap. There's no oil slicks, there's no crash debris, there's no evidence of landing in some weird backwater place. Nothing. And, I want to remind you, this took place in 2003... In a uh, unstable and warring part of Africa. So the U.S. is like, okay, 9-11 just happened. And there are people in this part of the world who would like to 9-11 us again. Oh, fuck, this is terrorism. So they look really, really hard for this plate, like right away. Um, the NSA, CIA, and FBI got on it, as well as the State Department, because they look to find missing people, missing Americans. 
Um, there were leaked documents, allegedly, of people looking in Sri Lanka, Nigeria, Congo. Nothing. There's literally never been a trace of this plane again. That's crazy. Isn't this weird? And I guess I'm assuming that his family never heard from him. Nope. Padilla and Mutanto, nothing has ever, never heard from them again. Jeez. So here's what we know. And I have some, and then there's also like some theories that get thrown around. So one, um, there's an article from Air and Space Magazine, which if you like this story, this goes way into the background in a lot of depth. Um... But it says, again, this is where the source that said that um, there was the owner of the plane and then there was, like, another company that leased the plane to deliver the diesel fuel to diamond mines. And there's a lot of writing about how the crews that did that considered it to be really dangerous and they would try not to land all the way and stuff like that. Um, The Charlie Project says, quote, the plane may have originally been headed in the direction of Burkina Faso. This is not a great place. Um, its last radio contact was to ask for landing permission in the Seychelles, an island nation in the Indian Ocean east of Africa. The plane never actually attempted to land there. Hmm. So that's weird. What the fuck? Um, in addition to, like, you know, what the plane was doing, what the work they were doing, like that being kind of ambiguous, the plane has some really fantastically shady history. So the main gist of it is that the owner of aerospace sales and leasing company, Mari Joseph, is perhaps selling or leasing this plane to a guy named Keith Irwin. And this handoff, whatever it is, is just not going well. So the payments are not happening or they're defaulting. There are things like not paying the crew, putting them up in places with no electricity or drinking water. Irwin is sort of, I've also seen that he's contracted to deliver water or fuel, and Mari Joseph is the owner, but that's in dispute. And again, this is a completely different story than flying the plane to be repossessed in South Africa, which is what the Charlie Project puts. Um, Eventually, this whole deal just falls apart entirely, and Joseph is like, get out of here. I'm going to find a new buyer, Jeff Swain. And Jeff Swain has this quote. So Jeff Swain is going to buy this plane. Again, what? And he says, quote, You can't put water tanks full of fuel in an airplane and expect it to be good. Totally stupid. But it had really good engines on it, so maybe 1,000 cycles since new. So there's just this, like, very shady background on who owns the plane, what it's being used for, like officially and unofficially where it's supposed to be going it's one like air and space does a good job of trying to outline the facts but it's also still just like very tricky and difficult and murky and you'll see lots of different stuff so this is the situation when the plane disappears like there's massive amounts of money being owed or moved around there's disputes over everything the working conditions there are terrible um Yeah, it's just crazy. So, in addition to the theories about terrorism, um, there's also a theory, like, kind of connected to that, is that maybe the plane was hijacked. So maybe some people ran in and took those two people hostage to get the plane. Um, Padilla did apparently tell his brothers at one point that if he was ever in that situation, he would crash a plane. So maybe he did crash it on purpose, and that 
just somehow has never been found. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, especially if it crashes in water, like the ocean is uh-huh. ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's possible that something could crash in water and quote unquote disappear like that. Um, I don't know. It's weird. Um, another theory is uh, Mari Joseph, again, the guy that owned this company, uh, either crashed or had the plane stolen for insurance fraud. fraud insurance fraud. <laughs> Same uh, difference. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, he had been convicted of fraud before, and like I said, there's this huge, weird, shady history. Um, means that plenty of people might have wanted to take the plane to recoup money. Uh, it was also, again, kind of in an unstable place, so it could have been just like, I don't know. But you'd think that it would show up again, right? I don't know. Anyway. I mean, right, if it was, well. I mean, I guess if you stripped an engine out and sold it, but you'd think, like, with all of the scrutiny, you know, if, if a 727 engine appeared out of nowhere, you know, the CIA would pounce on it or something. I mean, it'd have to be really well disguised and paperwork would have had to been creatively reworked for it to show up um, and not get discovered. Yeah, and I mean, a 727 is a big plane. It's Mm -hmm. not like you could just work on it in your backyard garage or something. It, it, I just don't know how you could hide it if it still existed. Uh, another theory is that it was stolen to run drugs or guns, which is kind of close to terrorism. Um, there is an ABC News article that, quote, it says, apparently, quote, U.S. officials told ABC News that this was like a theory um, and Padilla was in on it. But his family says no, and he's never been involved in any illegal things before. Um, And then I found one article from the Daily Star, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But uh, apparently in the Sahara, there was a plane that was found, and it looked like it crashed. But, uh uh-oh. No, Emily, you're gone. Can you hear me? Okay, you're back. Sorry, I pulled my headphones out. Rude. So, uh, apparently there was a plane found in the Sahara and it looked like it had crashed and it was a 747 or 727. I forgot what kind of stupid plane I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) but when they went to investigate it, it turns out that there was like a dry lake bed that had been sort of turned into this, you know, janky runway and the plane had been landed and then intentionally set on fire And this article said that it was, like, the plane that was found had this false registration for this other plane that had been used for, like, worldwide cocaine smuggling. So they don't really know where this plane came from, but it is connected to this other one through some registration chicanery. And their theory is that this was that plane. And uh, Padilla and... What's the other guy's name? Mutantic. Were either part of that and, you know, are off living large somewhere, or they were murdered after being kidnapped. Did they have that, any, like, 
really strong evidence showing that that plane could be that plane, or is that just, it could be that plane? It could be that. It's like the same kind of plane. I think that's the most exciting theory, but also probably the least likely. (laughs) Sometimes a plane is just a plane, guys. Yeah. And that is the disappearance, the 2003 disappearance of uh, Ben C. Padilla, John Michael Mutanto, and a Boeing 727. Well, that's sad. Why are these such a bummer? I know, it's such a bummer. They're weird. They're weird. I, this one, I always write the disappeared ones, and this one really creeped me out because they're super strange. All right, you ready for one more? I'm ready. Let's do it. I, you, you might know this one. So this one is uh, perhaps the most famous and, in my mind, kind of the most mysterious. Uh, this is the story of Lars Mittank. So Lars is a 28-year-old German. In 2014, he's going on a vacation with some uh, bros of his. They're going on a dude's trip to Varna, Bulgaria, which is apparently a really beautiful spot because it's called, quote, the Bulgarian Riviera, Uh, (laughs) despite, you know, being in the human trafficking capital of the world. So, uh, regardless of that creepy fact this is Lars first time abroad and he's having a great time Uh, he has a week of clubbing drinking beaching he's having fun so much fun in fact that on the night of July 6th apart from his friends he says he bumps into another group of German tourists who support his football team's rival and they get into a brawl (laughs) of course they do yeah right so he goes to the doctor the next morning who's like, look, your eardrum is ruptured from getting hit in the head at this fight and you shouldn't fly because that can make it worse. And here's some antibiotics to like, you know, make sure it doesn't get infected or whatever. Fair enough. Yeah. It seems like despite getting hit in the head, uh, he's acting normal. One In one article, there's a quote from his friend saying that he wasn't eating a lot, so maybe he has some reduced appetite. Um, But two days later, um, as all his friends are getting ready to leave, he's like, oh, hey, this happened. I can't fly. And they're like, well, okay, somehow they decide that, you know, they're all going to go and Lars is going to stay behind, which is fine. But it is the high season, so he can't stay in, like, the nice resort where he was with all his buddies. So he just books a cheap hotel that's kind of near the airport to wait out a couple days. Totally normal, right? You don't want to mess your ear up anymore. Yep. Um, But that's where things start to unravel and get really weird. So that night, he calls his mom, and he tells her that something is strange about the hotel, that four men are following him. One source said they wanted to know what the tablets were. Remember how he has those antibiotics? Mm-hmm. Um, the quote from his mother says, I thought, God, my son is in danger. I could hear his heart pounding over the phone. He said people were trying to rob him or kill him. So he tells her to cancel his cards. And she's like, okay, I will. But, like, you need to get out of there. I'm booking you a plane ticket to leave the next day. So... The next day, uh, he calls his mom again. They talk really briefly. He still seems super worried, like something strange is going on. 
but he says his phone battery is about to die, so they keep it kind of short, and you can see his mom being like, or you can imagine her just being like, okay, get to the airport, come home, we'll figure it out. Yep. Stop, stop fucking around there. (laughs) Yeah, so he puts on a yellow shirt and shorts, he's got all his stuff with him packed into a backpack and a duffel, he gets a cab, he goes to the airport, and... Once he gets to the airport, you can you can see all of this. The security footage is not only kept, but it is released and very easily available online. So um, you can watch what I'm about to describe. So he, once he gets there, he checks in with a medical doctor because apparently in uh, Bulgaria, they have a freaking medical doctor at the airport, uh, which is awesome and weird. Um, one source said that he was in there with the doctor for 45 minutes, and later the doctor says that although Lars was, um, prescribed these antibiotics, he never went and got them. He never filled the prescription, um, so he wasn't taking them, and it also said that the original doctor, when he went and said, yeah, you've, you've got a ruptured eardrum, that original doctor recommended that he follow up, and Lars didn't do the follow-up. So... Lars is in there talking to the doctor, and during the course of this, this guy who's dressed like a construction worker, and nothing weird about that, there's construction going on at the airport, you know, I've never seen anything other than that this is a guy wearing, like, a hard hat or whatever. Yeah. He walks in to, like, talk, like, ask the doctor something, and Lars, like, looks super freaked out, and, like, oh my god, what's happening? He apparently mutters something along the lines of, I don't want to die here, I have to get out of here. And he runs out of the doctor's office without any of his stuff. He literally is running. Um, He sprints out of the airport, goes outside, runs away, and there's like an eight-foot fence, sort of, you know, like, there's a way where you can get up to an airport, but they usually have fences off so that people don't, like, walk onto the roads or the airport and stuff. So Lars runs goes to an eight-foot fence, climbs it, and disappears into, like, some trees. And that is the last that anyone has ever seen of him. Oh, my God. Super weird, right? I also want to know what those tablets were. No, he never took them, though. Wow, that's... Yeah. So, I will say, one of the things, and I said, you can watch this, and it's, it's worth watching... Um, because the description that I just gave you, it makes it seem like someone's really scared and they're, like, running away from something they're afraid of. But when I watch the video, like, he's running out and it's weird. He's running, like, really fast. But he is not, like, looking around or darting or, you know. And then once he gets outside, he kind of slows down to, like, a walk or a trot. Like, it kind of looks like like the doctor, if the doctor had said something like, hey, you forgot you need your passport. And then he's like, you know, passes back and he goes, oh shit, I must have left it in the car. Let me go get it. And he's sort of like jogging to go get somewhere. That's kind of what it looks like when he gets outside. But then when he gets to the fence, he just like vaults over it. Like it's really, that part is creepy. Cause like nobody needs to climb a fence that fast. Huh? So it's like, super weird. I'm going to have to watch this video. I, mm-hmm am entirely intrigued by this 
it's almost the opposite of Dimitri, our first guy. Um, several sources called him the fa most famous missing person on YouTube because, like, the security footage is there. You can watch it. Um, in 2009, a truck driver in um, Dresden said that he picked up a hitchhiker and drove him. And then after dropping him off, he found out about Lars Tank, And he goes, oh, I think that was him. Like this sort of sh like weird homeless dude. Um, and then, but that's never been confirmed. Um, another person in Canada posted something on Reddit saying, oh, there's this homeless guy in my neighborhood and I think it's Lars. And people were kind of dismissive. Um, there was someone found wandering, confused, not sure what was going on in South America. But once that person was treated in the hospital, he, we were, they were able to figure out who he was and it was not large. So there are like every once in a while sightings pop up now and then, but, uh, yeah, there are some theories. You want to hear them? Yes. I'm okay. very curious. I'm going to go from my least favorite to my favorite. Theory. Okay. So the least, the first one is organ trafficking or human trafficking. And here is, even though I did say that Bulgaria was, according to one source, the human trafficking capital of the world, here is my bugaboo about that theory every time it comes up. That's not how human trafficking works. <laughs> like, if you're going to grab someone for forced prostitution or to cut their liver, you're not just going to pick a random person, right? Like... You're going to find someone that is not going to make a media stink. You're going to groom them so that they don't want to escape. You're going to, you know, choose someone that people won't believe, that people won't care about. You know, why would you grab Lars Metank, who's going to become super famous, when you could grab, you know, some poor white dude from the slums who has no living family and has a drug problem, right? Yep, fair enough. So this is my problem with human trafficking. Whenever this comes up as an example, I'm like, they have conducted interviews with convicted pimps about how they get people to be prostitutes. This is not how that works. So I don't like that one. Um, another one is some sort of psychotic break. Um, Lars had previously no history of mental illness, but he was 28 and... That's kind of young. That's young enough that, you know, if you maybe had a history of in your family um, and your brain was predisposed to something and you do some sort of weird drug on vacation, maybe you could trigger a psychosis or something, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Now, I want to say my this next little bit is very juicy and it's super interesting to me. However... I saw it on a Reddit thread and nowhere else. But allegedly on this Reddit thread, somebody said, so Lars was alone when he got in this fight, right? And so he's, this poster on the Reddit thread says, listen, Lars, that story about the fight just comes from Lars. Lars told his friends that this group hired people to beat him up. And so we don't actually know if that's what happened. Like there's no other proof or like corroboration except Lars's friends saying this is what he told us before he disappeared 
So that's really weird. I did see a quote from one of his friends who was on the vacation that said that the story of the fight was weird because Lars was generally a peaceful guy. Um, I saw in a couple sources that there were no like outward signs of a fight. And you'd think if one guy got in a fight with a bunch of guys, you know, he'd have some scuffs, but apparently he didn't. Hmm. Um, and then there's this other one that, um, originated in the Reddit thread, but I think has a lot of water and makes this kind of more mysterious and weird, but generally like a blow to the head is not going to rupture an eardrum. Usually the way you get a ruptured eardrum is you have an ear infection. Uh, my mom, for example, has ruptured her eardrum and she did it. She had like a sinus infection was flying and the change in elevation ruptured her eardrum, but she was sick. Right. And the fact that the doctor gave him antibiotics is what a doctor would do if you had an ear infection. Right. Yeah. So one that puts a lot of mystery on like why this fight story and you know, like, what is that all about? Um, but it all also does perhaps offer this explanation that if you have sepsis or if you have an infection in your head, it can get into your brain, which is one reason why tooth infections need to be taken seriously. Um, and Lars didn't take his prescribed antibiotics, so that could be that. Probably if you were getting a bad infection, you would have more symptoms than just acting erratically. But if it was spreading to your brain, that would be theoretically one of the early ones. Yeah. And that is the disappearance of Lars Metank, Ben C. Padilla, and Dmitry Zavodowski, who went to liminal spaces and never returned. I think you're right. Um... The, uh, the, the sepsis one feels like something, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking too, like, if you have a ruptured eardrum or even just an ear infection, if you, you know, that could affect your balance a little bit or, you know, the way that you hear things would be off. And so I could see if you you know, are getting an infection. And I'm also one of those people, when I get a fever, I get really paranoid and weird. You have a fever, your balance is off. This happens right as you move into a new hotel that's cheap and probably a little shady because cheap hotels are shady. I could kind of see that being why he was getting wiggy. But why would you run out of the airport without any of your things? For the fuck of it. <laughs> I mean, clearly. Yeah. It, well, and then the other problem with the sepsis and being really sick, I mean, you would be really, really sick. Like, if you were starting to get an infection spreading, you'd, like, your body is, you're having a fever, your body is fighting with everything. Like, you're not at full capacity. Uh, so the idea that you could run around and jump over a fence when you were that sick feels like maybe not. Oh, no, maybe, like, you're so feverish that like you feel you know like you have a superpower yeah yeah or like something just give him an adrenaline jolt and he's like all right i can get rid of this maybe maybe these are uh these are all fucked up man 
Right? And very creepy in different ways. Like, the explanations are so different for each of them. Well, you know, they're all contemporary enough. Just remember. Yeah, I mean... We're all just one liminal space away from disappearing. Yeah, and if anyone um, would like to pronounce, like, correct my uh, Belarusian pronunciations or recent history, please... Please contact us. <laughs> Please do it. I was like, here, let me explain a 10-year war in two seconds. And I'm like, oh, dear God, I hope this is correct. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well. Go sit in your hallway and you'll understand what we mean by the weirdness of a liminal space. You know, it's almost like... um. You know, you skip school, like, for one of the first times, and you're at home during the day, and you're like, this is different. <laughs> yeah, or I was thinking, like, those massive apartment complexes, they all have, like, outdoor hallways and staircases, but no one ever sits on their porch. Nobody ever hangs out there. Like, I remember even when I was, like, a teenager at parties in those apartments, like, you'd go outside to smoke, and people would, like, smoke as fast as possible and go back inside. Like, it's very uncomfortable to be outdoors in those, like, outdoor hallways. They're, like, covered but outdoors still, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, those ones are absolutely, like, this is just meant to get you from one place to another. Well, I feel like, uh, I don't know. Creep, creeped out? Well, I mean, I feel creeped out, but I'm thinking about, like, the indoor-outdoor spaces. I typically like to be outside, but I don't like to be outside-outside. Yeah. Like, if I could get a yeah. screen porch, that would be the best thing in the world, but... Yeah, it's like, a screen porch is really nice, but... A not-quite-porch in one of those mega-apartment complexes is Fake porch. (laughs) Fake porch, yep. Well, Well, goodbye uh -uh. forever. No, I was going to do it. Damn it. Fine. Okay. Goodbye forever. Whatever. Then was the last we ever heard of her. (laughs) I'm going to my liminal space. All Things Terror is written, recorded, and produced by two amateurs, Jennifer and Emily. Our sound editor is Clint. Intro music is by Cosimo Fogg. Come chat with us on Twitter at All Things Terror or Instagram at All Things Terror Podcast. Ask nicely and we'll probably send you a really cute sticker. If you like this podcast, tell a friend or write a review. It really helps us and helps more people find us. Goodbye forever.